This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, I'm Stuart Craner. This is the Thinkers 50 podcast. Uh, today I'm talking with Stephen Frost, who's co-author of Building an Inclusive Organization. And Stephen is also CEO and founder of the inclusion consultancy, Frost Included. Uh, great name for a company as well, Stephen. The, uh, so diversity and inclusion is good for business that that case has been proven really hasn't it yes i think though there's several layers to it i mean i think now in 2019 most ceos you know have to say they support diversity inclusion have to say the business case but then if you scratch down a little bit do they really believe that i think there's a difference between those that say they do and those that generally embed it in their thinking um, so we can prove, for example, the correlation between diversity and performance pretty robustly now. But it's still a debate about causality. And I think some people often overstate the case by saying diversity will cause better performance. But that is entirely dependent really on inclusion and the leadership that exists. So yes, um, I think the business case is robust in terms of correlation, but terms of causation and, and really getting down into the real benefits of it, still still work to do. How, how did you get involved in, in this area in the first place? What was, what's the genesis of your work? So um, a, a series of wrong turns, really. Um, I mean, I started off in, in classic commercial background, advertising and management consultancy. Um, but then I went to do my graduate work in the US and got involved in the gay marriage campaign in 2002-03 in Massachusetts and various other kind of causes, which I felt quite strongly about, actually. And so when I came back to the UK, I had the opportunity to work at Stonewall, the UK's LGBT equality uh, organisation, and set up their consulting programmes. So it was, a, it was a really nice blend of my commercial background and business skill set with a kind of a, a mission of purpose that I really believed in. And from, from Stonewall, a really interesting moment in history, then I went on to do the Chief of Staff, Head of Diversity role at the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics, and then did it for KPMG, and then set up my own company. I mean, you, you, your book, uh, Building an Inclusive Organisation, which, which is re really good, I think, because it's, it's, it's really practical. And it, and it highlights the, the uh, phenomenon that inclusion is seen as the preserve of the HR department. What way is that a problem? I mean, it's, it's obviously the preserve of the HR department, but it needs to go beyond that. Well, well, why is it obviously? I mean, I think, look, where HR is a genuinely strategically enabled value-adding function where they're respected by the business, and they're, you know, they're really, then fantastic. But let's get real, very often, too often, diversity and inclusion is a subset of HR. And HR itself has a bit of an insecurity problem getting you know, a seat at the table. And so you're going to give the biggest change work to the people with least power. And then you wonder why things don't happen. So I think in terms of obviously part of HR, obviously in the sense that, yes, it's about people and people can be tricky. And it's about change. and That's behavior and culture being what you do. But fundamentally, it's got to be in every department of the organization, led from the top down and bottom up to really create change that generally helps the organization now people can be tricky mm. <laughs> sums up the challenge of management and leadership really doesn't it indeed um, um 
and, and have, having a, a mix of people might even be trickier, I suppose. Absolutely. And again, back to, I guess, where we started on this idea of, you know, does diversity necessarily lead to increased performance? Well, dependent on inclusion, dependent on leadership. So if you imagine a bell curve of, you know, productivity and diversity, and the two axes, um, you know, a very homogenous team can outperform a diverse team in the short run for relatively obvious reasons, more trust, common language, no shared norms. But in the long run, if a diverse team is inclusively led, it will usually always outperform the homogenous team. And so it's a bell curve in a sense that too little diversity and too much diversity unled can both be problems and suboptimal in terms of productivity, where there's a sweet spot. And I think most organizations are to the left of that sweet spot rather than the right of it. But it's yeah. really about getting the diversity then inclusively leading it. Hmm. How do you know if you're in the sweet spot? Well, I think in a sense, we can look at the counterfactuals very easily. So if we look at, you know, brilliant people who've led amazing organizations where it's all gone wrong, what do they have in common? You look at Lehman Brothers or Kodak or Nokia or Swiss Air or Blockbuster. When you look at these organizations, there was in many ways a lack of diversity. Yes and no, if not demographic diversity, but yes, very much in terms of cognitive diversity. I mean, the two guys who run Lehman Brothers really didn't tolerate much dissent at the executive team level. And I think that failure to include different perspectives and to welcome challenge was a key factor in their ultimate failure. So that, that's, I guess, how to think about it in terms of the counterfactual. Is business taking the lead in inclusion? Yes and no. So I think, I think if we look at what is inclusion, you're bringing different people together to, to, to add value. Um, I think most businesses, if we're honest, are still doing it because they have to. So a lot of them are still doing what I call diversity 101, which is we're hiring more women or more men or promoting more minorities because of the legislation, because of the compliance driver. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I mean, compliance is an incredibly important part of this conversation, but it's never going to really add value. There's a lot of other organizations that are uh, doing this stuff because it makes them look good. So for reputational reasons, you know, look at any FTSE 100 annual report and you can't move to the diversity word and benefit images abound. And, and again, communication is really important, but these two things are insufficient uh, because whilst they might be necessary, they're really not going to, you know, create a massive source of competitive advantage. The third area where I think some organizations, and it's still a minority of organizations, are leading, is in what I call inclusion 3.0, or real inclusion. The idea that we embed this thinking, not in a subset of HR, but in the way that we make decisions in our everyday day jobs. So rather than thinking this is an additional work stream that we do on a Friday afternoon, almost in a CSR mindset, we've got to think about how do we run the team meeting? How do we make decisions? Who do we consult? You know, what's our workforce feeling? What's the market doing? Thinking about diversity inclusion as an integral part of the big decisions that we make in every work stream that we do in the day job. I still think that's a minority of organizations, but there are some that are doing that to great effect. And where is best practice? Which organizations do you come across who are doing this really well, not only in the corporate sector, but elsewhere? So, I mean, a lot of people always ask me, so, so, so give us the best case studies. 
I think the bad news is that there's not one organization I've come across that ticks all the boxes, right? You know, there's some that are, there's no one that's kind of got a home run. But I mean, as we mentioned in the book, you know, there's, there's lots of organizations that have got great practice in various areas. So if you look, for example, at recruitment, um, I think, you know, the way that Google go about recruitment with consistent interview questions, you know, a, a very structured process, uh, the hiring manager being removed from the final meeting to reduce bias. These are all great things in terms of, um, you know, recruitment. I think it is decision making. I think a lot of things the Bank of England are doing are great. So the Bank of England, for example, has a policy of author in the room, where irrespective of the very hierarchical nature of the bank that persists, if it's a more junior person that had the insight or wrote the paper, they're in there with the governors articulating their perspective. So it's really challenging the hierarchy to get the, the right expertise in the room for the best decisions. So I think, you know, it depends what aspect of decision-making or leadership we're looking at, but there are really good examples out there with in terms of recruitment, promotion, retention, decision-making, leadership. And I just want to kind of scale those for you. It seems that one of the issues is that inclusion is, is actually a much wider subject. I mean, from what you say, it touches all, it's got to touch all aspects of a company's behavior and culture. But it's, it is often defined by companies and those in other organizations as a narrow subject. We're going to tackle pay gap, pay gap, and that's it. But in fact, what you're saying is it's, it's a much bigger thing. Absolutely. I think, I mean, let's take a couple of examples. On the pay gap, or on, let's say, gender inequality organizations generally, often the knee-jerk response from organizations is a technical fix to what is at the end of the day a cultural problem. And you can't fix culture. So, you know, it's great to look at the gender pay gap. It's great to do things to fix that. But it's really only when you tackle male behavior, male leadership culture, the culture of the organization, that you're going to get profound cultural change and the real benefits of inclusion. And so another example would be, we do a lot of work with male-led executive teams or male-dominated executive teams. And you go into the leadership work and often a lot of those guys think this is about women or about ethnic minorities, i.e. it's not about them. And they go in with it of a mindset, quite a CSR mindset, thinking I'm going to have to champion women or champion gay people or, or black people or whatever minority it might be. But actually pretty soon you get people to realise it's less about them and more about me and more actually about my leadership style, my behavior, the culture that I create, particularly when I've got more power, more decision-making authority. And that switch from it being about them to it being about me is not only quite profound personally, but to your point, it is actually much bigger than people at first assume it is. And so rather than it just being a segregated work stream about them, you realize actually it's much more of a profound methodology of how we lead generally and how we make decisions overall. And, and that for me is the exciting realization of the untapped potential of what inclusion can do for organizations. Yeah. So it's changing white men from being seeing themselves as the problem and being the problem to becoming part of the solution. White men are particularly in the line of sight at the moment in certain Western countries, but you know, we've all got bias. I think it's about being aware of that and going on a journey to, you know, amplify it where it is useful and, and deal with it where it's not. The, the human, human uh, bias gene is, is very clear in your book that biases do, do exist no matter what. Yeah, and, you know, again, I think 
rather like at the beginning we talked about diversity and often be overstated in terms of causality rather than correlation. Often bias can be demonized as the you know, bias is inherently a bad thing. Well, that's quite a depressing outcome in a sense because we're all biased to a massive degree. So isn't that a, quite a depressing thought that we all do? And, and I'd like to think about it slightly differently, that bias can be useful. I mean, without bias, you know, you and I wouldn't get through the day. You know, we, we make cognitive shortcuts based on biases all the time. And that's how we fall in love or make friendships or make decisions or decide what to wear or step on a brake and hit the brake of a car rather than hitting a child or et cetera, et cetera. So, so bias forms a function and that function can be useful to help us survive. But bias can also be problematic. And I think it's about being aware of those instances when it is you know, getting in the way of making more objective decision-making and doing something about it. Do you think we're making progress? I mean, this, this, the debate about uh, inclusion has been going on for a long time. And there are issues that have been in, in the news over the last couple of years, the Me Too movement. And to some extent, it's, it's quite depressing that we're having the same, the same arguments come to the fore again, in, but in different, with different language and different people involved. Uh, but do you have a sense that organisations are making progress? Are yes. becoming more inclusive? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be optimistic because, you know, we know more and more each day. We knew very little about the human mind, you know, 20 years ago when it was equal opportunities. We know far more now about behavioural economics, about, you know, neuroscience, about bias, about how we make decisions. And I think the more we know, the more we can do. Now, to start with the negative, your, your point about it's depressing we're having the same conversation again and again. Sure. And I think we always will do, because the natural tendency of human beings is to form into tribes is to prefer sameness to difference, to gravitate towards people who agree with me. And of course, technology, particularly social media, fuels that. It allows us to indulge our biases and form into hyper-tribes ever more, often based on very, very false or incomplete information. However, I think most people are good. Most people want to do the right thing. And knowing more now than we have done in the past, we can do things to make things better, both consciously so I can decide to consciously do things, but also using behavioral economics and nudges to unconsciously nudge us in the right direction. So if you look, for example, at road safety, using behavioral economics and nudges and unconscious interventions, we've been able to make roads safer than they've ever been. You know, the road safety in the UK has never been better. Or if you look at, for example, other issues of, for example, dieting or nutrition, we know now more than ever. And so there's things we can definitely do to make, you know, us all better, the world better. And I think as long as we've got good leaders in place, we've got good organisation onto the right thing, and we, we, we harness people's, you know, good angels, that we can make progress. And I think we are making progress. If you look at, you know, the rights of lesbian and gay people in the workforce, pre-2000, they couldn't be in the military, now they can. Legislation on women earning less than men, before we didn't know, now we do, we can do things to close the gap. Now it's going to be on ethnic minority injustices in the workplace too. So I think you know, things can get better. We've just got to keep the argument going and not just sit on our laurels where things will go backwards. Yeah. So we can make nudges towards inclusion. And that's probably the most practical thing that your book offers is that the nudges towards a more inclusive organisations. Yeah. Again, both conscious and unconscious. 
and you know the fact that there are practical things that we can all do that will make a difference and te technology what's, what's the role of technology because as you as you say uh, human beings are tribal and technology enables us organizations to target tribes it actually makes things more tribal in a way absolutely so again unchecked you know technology will exacerbate our biases allow us to indulge our biases um, and we're seeing that right in the polarization online facebook and everything else sometimes to very dangerous results so technology can be a real problem and it's also worth pointing out that we, we think, for example, with AI and machine learning, that we're creating more objective uh, tools to help us make more objective decisions. And not necessarily the case, because it's human beings that, of course, are coding those machines and programming them. And so the bias is being transferred into cyberspace. And so we've got to be very aware of that, both unconsciously, but also consciously they can be exploited. So therefore, I think we have to think, well, how can we use technology and those same ideas for good? I think therefore there's a lot of work going on at the moment into, for example, how we can counteract algorithms, how we can have more diverse coders in place, how we can use technology actually to really challenge and reform us, to bring people together rather than drive them apart. So the, the world's coders actually have a key role to play in creating inclusive organisations of the future. Yeah, I think technology's got a massive role to play. Yeah. So, so, so where does your work go next then, Stephen? Where, where, does, where does the research and the ideas go next, do you think? Well, I think we're always looking at new ways to, you know, advance inclusion. I think something that we've done recently and want to do more of is how we measure inclusion to demonstrate, you know, progress. I think still far too many organisations are fixated on measuring diversity alone. And look, that's very important. Representation is very, very important. But ultimately, Again, you can't fix culture, so you have to look at inclusion. And so if we measure things like psychological safety, how able are we to speak up and challenge bad decisions? Um, how fair do we perceive decision-making process to be? How transparent is the pay negotiation structure? If we can measure this, and then we can demonstrate progress, and indeed identify the behaviors that contribute to or detract from more inclusive workplaces, that's really useful. So we're doing a lot more work in that space, measurement and reporting and how you can kind of shift cultures. And the other area that we do a lot more research on at the moment is decision-making. So again, how really great people, smart, you know, articulate people who run really interesting organizations can make more inclusive, more accurate, more calibrated decisions. I think there's a lot of work to do there. So. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but as you say, I think it is heading in a, in a positive direction. So Stephen Frost, author, co-author of Building an Inclusive Organisation, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure, thank you. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.